Hi, it's Ian Brody here. Welcome to the More Clients podcast. With me today is James Sale. James is an expert on motivation, what makes people tick and do the things they do. And I'm going to be talking to, to James in, in two different contexts, two different parts. Uh, you may remember I interviewed James a few years ago about his business um, when I was doing a series of, of interviews on authority marketing and how James was using presentations and seminars and other methods to grow his authority in his field. Um, now, James's business has moved on significantly since then. Um, he's now doing some interesting new things. So I'm going to interview him in two parts. The first part is going to be about his business um, because he's, he's, he's made a shift recently in his business from doing primarily focusing on live client work to doing things through products and through a team of licensees, which is a direction I know a lot of people listening will be very interested in and may see as an approach for themselves. So I'll talk to James about how he's done that. In the second part, of the interview, I'll talk to James about motivation because obviously motivation is a, is a key factor that drives buying behavior. So we'll talk, uh, we'll be talking to him in the context of how we can understand what motivates people more in order to understand how to, how to market and sell to them better. So James, that was a really long intro. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Ian. It's fabulous to be with you again. And, um, just let me say I've, enjoyed your work and followed your work and subscribed to your emails and uh, various things that you send out from time to time. And I just think you're doing a fabulous job helping people get on top of their marketing. It's such an important issue. And uh, you're always so lively, so full of energy. And always that's a, that's a bonus to the marketing. There's so many flat marketeers, but you are a really highly energized, highly motivated one. So oh, that is, uh, that's, that's the difference. Fantastic. Thank you. I have to say, James and I have just spent, we were supposed to have started this interview about 20 minutes ago. We've just been rabbiting on about science, Copernican uh, astrophysics, the Dow, all sorts of stuff. Not the Dow Jones, but <laughs> <laughs> the, the yin and yang Dow. The yin and yang Dow. Yes, indeed. The philosophical Dow. Brilliant. So, um, Part one, and I'm going to talk to you about your business. And you've recently completed quite a shift in your business. And um, when we last spoke, most of your work was kind of live client work and you're, you're doing most things yourself. Now you're doing primarily things through um, products you've developed and a team of licensees who are doing the things that in a way you used to do. What prompted you to go down that route? Well, I think, Ian, this really was a, um, I'm not a great business person and I, I really am not. It, it's not something that business per se doesn't really interest me, but because I've been in business for 20 years, at the end of the day, you, you do learn things and you pick up things and you grow as a person. And so to put this in context, so it's a kind of evolution. It's a kind of personal growth, but to put it in context, you know, in 1995, I left employment for the final time. And, 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 and as anyone who's been self-employed for a long period of time, you know, you become ultimately unemployable. Mm. So there's no, there's no going back <laughs> to a job. In 1995, I left employment and I thought I was setting up a business. Actually, what I was really doing for the first 10 years was I was just merely becoming self-employed. I was full on with coaching and training. I loved it. But then I began to notice a curious thing, which was that um, when I stopped working, I didn't make any money. And um, and this was actually, although the money was good in terms of what I was being paid to do the coaching and training, the fact that you stopped, I realized I was advising businesses on business, but really I wasn't in a business myself. I was just merely self-employed. So in 2006, uh, as a result of what I'd done in the pre preceding 10 years in terms of developing stuff that I could use, I set up what I thought was a real business, and it was a real business. In other words, for me, the definition of the real business isn't a business that makes money even when you don't work yourself. So even when you're not doing the delivery, this 
thing that you, this entity that you have created still creates value and still creates a revenue stream. So I created motivational maps and I created a licensing situation and this went on for five or six years and it was gaining, gaining traction. We got more people on board who became licensees of the product. But then in 2011, um, I became seriously ill with cancer. In fact, I nearly died from it. It was very seriously ill. I was in hospital for three months and I didn't really work for nine months. And strangely to say, I mean, it was a lifesaver for me that I had the business that I had because it still continued generating revenues, even though I was obviously out of the picture. My wife was running the business for me, not as a deliverer, but simply administrating this and coordinating it and doing the stuff that needed to be done. Um, but, you know, this was a clear revelation to me that the, that the move we'd done in 2006 had been uh, really a good move and had been successful. But I also became painfully aware that if I did or I had have died at the time, the business would fold because it was so dependent upon me doing the training and the coaching and being out there in the field. So my wife and I decided when we came out that we needed to actually do something a little bit more than just simply have a business that generated um, revenues when I was sleeping. We needed a business that had longevity. We needed something in which effectively what I'm talking about here is succession planning. So what would happen if I was no longer able to deliver? Bearing in mind I'm well into my 60s now. I don't intend to retire. I don't like to. I mean, I want to be busy. I want to be active. I like what I do. But, you know, nobody's immortal. That was very apparent to me back in 2011. So we needed succession planning. So, um, so one of the drivers, in fact, the primary driver of this was this idea that I wanted a legacy. I wanted to have something that would carry on. The work I'd started would carry on even if I was no longer there to do it. That was very, very important. And I realized as well, the famous Michael Gerber comment, I realized too that I was spending too much time working in the business because I liked coaching. I liked training. I, I knew I was really good at this. I was outstanding at this, in fact, but I had to spend more time working on the business and extricate myself. And these two things were interlocked, the succession planning and working on the business. This was something that was interlocked. So I began a process post-2011. It was slow to begin with because actually, clearly, having been out of the frame for nine months, I had a lot of picking up of things mm. to do. And obviously, we were getting short of money anyway because though we were making money, obviously, there's, there's a kind of rundown factor here. Unless you're, unless you're keeping your, your finger on the pulse, things start falling away. So there was a lot of rebuild that needed to be done. But the first rebuild that needed doing was I realized, well, the, the product I had wasn't good enough as it stood. And so we actually spent six months completely re-engineering the whole product. Uh, and that made, so the whole thing became acceptable at what I'd say corporate level. It, 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 beforehand, it looked very SME-ish. And that was fine if you were in SMEs, but we needed something that looked much more professional. So there was a whole series of, it wasn't just about, um, you know, not doing training and not doing coaching. It was about the whole look of the company, how it felt, as well as the kind of people that we were going to attract to help us deliver the value that we wanted to deliver and to create that longevity that we wanted to create. That, 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 well, that, that, loads of really interesting points there, James. I'm just going to pick up on that last one because I think that will be quite important for a lot of people listening. Probably are thinking that the corporate market is is likely to be a, a very important market for them. What did you find um, to be the differences between um, if you have a product uh, that you are you're aiming to sell? What 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 are the differences between a corporate market and what something needs to look like to work in a corporate environment versus um, a small business environment. There were two key things uh, that were really important for us about this. Uh, the first is 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 actually look 
and another a better word than look is image. I think corporates are very concerned about their image, which of course they should be because it's all about branding. We had a product that the content was absolutely first rate, but it's not enough to have a first rate content. You also got to have a first rate image. We took on board a top guy from IBM whose speciality was, um, customer usability, web usability mm. for, for customers on the web. He was completely obsessed with how this thing looked from a corporate point of view. We've got this guy on board with us. He's, he's become a close personal friend. He's become seriously involved with our, our company. But through him, we were able to create an image with the product that was far, far superior just to what we had before, which which looked kind of mums and popsy, looked very yeah. kind of home done. This actually had this whole sort of feel about it that that that, that, that you know, the corporate could pick it up and think, oh, that that suits my company. That's that's the kind of thing I want to be identified with. And the second thing was, which we addressed directly, was we had never had the map validated externally. We, we knew the results were good. We had thousands of results. We had hundreds of testimonials, mm. but we'd not really validated it. So one of the key things coming out of hospitals, it took me two years to do this, but we got the product ISOed, the actual product itself. So we went through a convoluted with another consultant, went through a convoluted process of actually through a specialized number of ISO, ISO 17065 technically, but the products can be um, committed to an international standard. And that has been a fabulous. Um, it's released a whole lot of, you know, well, who's validated this product? Who says this is okay? Just the fact we've got that ISO certificate now for the product has made a huge difference at the corporate level. So, uh, you know, so it's image and it's also validation. So these two things, which I hadn't bothered to do beforehand because, you know, I'm, I don't tend to think like that. I just want to get results for the clients. I'm into outcomes and results and this works and just take my word for it. But uh, this became a very, very important two year program really to completely change the feel of it. That's really, that's really important. And did, did you, how did you find out that corporates needed that sort of thing? Was it from feedback you got from them? Yes. Talking to yes. Them? Yeah. It was exactly that. And in fact, um, the only, I, I can't remember one single SME who ever said to me or to any of the, of my licensees for that matter, Oh, who's validated this? Who says this is okay? I can't remember SMEs and MDs of, of small to medium sized companies. Does this work? If mm. the consultant says yes, it or the coach says yes, it works. Okay, let's see then. That's fine. It was always usually HR. Corporate HR would say, well, who's validated this? Mm. Yeah. And so that was always the question from them. And to be frank, my, uh, some of my coaches, some of my licensees, they fall into different categories. I've got some trainers. I've got some executive coaches. I've got some business coaches. I've got some personal coaches. So there's a whole range of them. But the kind of coaches who worked at the executive level, i.e. tended to be getting work in corporates, were themselves. So I was having a problem recruiting executive coaches because they would say, well, who's validated this? Because I should be asked that myself. So it was actually like a the, the the problem was coming up the chain much closer to home and i found since the validation in the last couple of years you know, we have found it a lot easier to sell to executive coaches because they feel comfortable that this is now a validated product and the ones we already had who were not too concerned about that are happy that we've got the validation so it was certainly worth doing and it's it, it kind of indicative i guess of that the, the corporate mindset of caring about the image side and, and using that as a kind of proxy for this is a robust corporate level product and caring about the, the validation and someone's run the rule over it, meaning it can be delivered consistently. Absolutely. Uh, 
Absolutely. And I think the, the great thing, you will know this, Ian, it's one of those famous stories from um, from the 60s and the 70s. But do you remember that wonderful phrase where nobody ever got fired for using IBM? Absolutely. You know, um, I, it, so it, it's that I think one of the corporate issues, because um, failure can lead to such specs to such spectacular falls from grace to such, you know, immediate disgraces where you, one minute you, you're on a six figure salary, the next minute you're out of the door. Mm. Um, not making mistake is, is almost as important as actually getting a result. And I mean, that's a frustrating thing, I think, from, from my point of view, from, from, from somebody who's an expert effectively in the SME market. But you know, the SME does tend not to think like that. They tend to go for the goal. But I think there's a lot of times in the, in the corporate market where not making the mistake is as important as actually getting a result. And that, of course, can lead to a lot of paralysis. No, I completely agree. I mean, my experience, especially when you have procurement involved or HR or other functions running the rule, is it's completely natural. Um, if you're a, a kind of business owner, you might want to, you might hire a maverick um, who could, uh, you know, get, get you brilliant results and, but maybe you're not quite sure whether those results are going to come or not. And in that case, you're kind of weighing up the, the 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 pros and the cons and you think well yeah but he could double the size of my business or whatever now if you're working in a corporate organization and you hire a maverick you don't feel the upside as no. an hr person if this guy really is brilliant and you get much better results than you were planning for actually you don't suddenly double your salary and you no, don't, you're absolutely nothing absolutely. great happens to you otherwise you might get a pat on the back or whatever but if that maverick fails for some reason you're in big trouble, as you just said. You could Absolutely. lose that, that kind of uh, six-figure job. So risk is is much more important in corporates or, or much more skewed. It's primarily it, it's avoidance of risk, whereas the entrepreneur might be much more willing to take risk on board um, in order to get the the, 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 the real um, upside of it. But in a corporate organization, the employees don't really feel the upside. Absolutely right. And in fact, you're probably going to ask me some questions later on, which are explicitly about risk Ah. in terms of motivational profile. In other words, the corporate motivational profile will be more skewed against risk and the SME profile, the entrepreneurial profile, will be much more skewed towards risk. And this is a fundamental thing that the maps themselves actually reveal. But I'm getting ahead of myself, but that's such an interesting point you've made that because the maps actually correlate with risk and change. So that's a very, very important point. So going back to this, this shift you made in your business. So you'd come out of hospital. You thought, I've got to make, I've got to make these changes. I've got to, um, up, up the level of the, of the product. So you started with the product itself. What other steps did you take to make that transition to more and more things being done through your licensees and through the product? Okay. Well, I think that that there's a number of things. I think. Um, as a mindset, as a mindset, and I'd probably, I'll probably come back to this at some point when you ask me to summarize something, but basically as a mindset, I think one became far more interested in collaboration. Um, I, I think one needed to collaborate. So one of the things I did was, um, over and above my licensees, I actively sought what I now call, this is my phrase for it, but you can call it what you will, but map champions. I have forged relationships with a number of key people, um, who are not actually in my field, but are incredibly dynamic and outstanding people. Hey, do you know what, Ian? <laughs> Maybe you could be one of them. Oh, um, um, uh, but I form relationships with people whereby it's, it's, it's actually, you know, one, 
is is supporting what they're doing and they're supporting what you're doing and actually enables one to open up a wider field uh, more doors more more stuff and it's actually very symbiotic it's a classic symbiotic thing so looking actively for map champions in in all in all ranges of field it's not just it's say in marketing it's a whole range of things that one's done so i've got about half a dozen or eight people i i could name and say to you well these people have been absolutely incredible over the last three years in helping me do this I've also created um, to do this. Um, there's been a shift in my marketing. So within my company itself, there's been a, a referral structure. So if I'm not going to be doing the work myself, but actual fact as the the primary company that deals with motivational maps, which worldwide we're in 14 countries now. We've got over 250 consultant coaches who who, who now are licensed by us. It, it does actually mean, though, a lot of people want to see, well, where, does, where do these maps come from? And they, they come and they contact us. Mm-hmm. So we've got lots of referrals that come our way um, through the marketing that we do, and I don't wish to any longer activate them. So as part of the structure of what we're doing, we've created a referral structure with, with our key people so that this can, we've got a clear understanding with them of what is going to happen when we get this um, – when we get these leads that come in to us. And I think the third thing I, I would talk about would be um, we created also a new structure within our licensees themselves. But previous to my illness, there were two levels, but we've created a third level. It's a sort of super level, if you want to call it that. And it's by invitation only. So people can buy into level one, and they can buy into level two, but they can't buy into level three. This is the third level in which there's only currently seven companies um, currently active and it's by invitation of me so these are people who are proven loyal incredibly able they've got to be really good at it really good at it. and it's not just really good at the kind of map motivation work really i've got to have people who are also good at marketing and selling because we, we do occasionally get a coach or somebody who's really good at coaching but they can't sell for toffees they can't market very well they just don't seem to get the need to do that so i've got seven of these companies which i have much more heavily invested in I, I, they're my heroes or my heroines if you want and a lot of them are women actually but heroes and heroines and I am working with them in a much more um, instrumental way. So, for example, we have a weekly webinar, a, sorry, a monthly webinar where you know, you know, stuff is communicated to them. I, I ask their advice on stuff, and alongside me positioning them much more strongly within the world community, and uh, writing the book, which is part of the reason that we're talking now. Um, writing the book is I have decided to position myself much more strongly on the world stage through publication. So the book is the first, perhaps, of a number of books, but a major book with a major publisher. Um, this, of course, positions me with motivation as being really above the, well above the average. I mean, I don't know whether you know this, but in America, there was some research done uh, on, you know, how many people really ever wanted to write a book. And apparently, uh, the research indicated 81% of people want think they've got a book in them that they want to write and get published. But of that, less than 1% got a book out. So when you look at these statistics, you know, to write a book of any sort is a pretty major achievement. Uh, I think to write one for a major publisher and get it out is obviously part of this drive for me to position myself above delivery to a point where the work comes, we've got a referral system, we've got a structure, and this can now start filtering down in a very creative way. So it sounds like those two things go together. So you're, you're positioning yourself above the delivery level, and that's kind of attracting things towards you. It, 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 um, but you need the delivery system to be established through your network of relationships. It's almost yes. like, as you were talking about, it was almost like you were building a management team for a business, 
but obviously the, these people don't work for you in your business. Um, but you, you're doing the same sort of things where you're, you know, keeping them up to date, getting feedback from them, help, you know, using them to help guide you. Um, yes. And get, and they are in a privileged position in your, like leaders in your own business. But obviously they run their own businesses. They run their own businesses, but the thing is they are like exactly that. They are kind of like managers. Of course, there's a kind of divided loyalty because they, they, they're key about their own, their own uh, situation. But from my perspective, if you were to talk about the long term, I mean, clearly at the end of the day, I am going to die. So what happens to the business? We will clearly want somebody or some bodies to take it on. We haven't yet formulated what that structure would look like and we're waiting to see what happens with our key people so you know if they're listening to this as i'm sure some of them will be they'll be very interested in this little bit but i mean clearly we could end up with shares in our main company going to some of our key people we could end up with some sort of cooperative venture i mean you know we need to see where this goes but clearly it's not about holding it all in the center it's about you know enabling a movement to occur hopefully a worldwide movement whereby this technology is going to become universal and important and it's going to make a difference. And um, when we come on to talking about the book, I'll, I'll tell you something really interesting about mission that emerged as a result of actually writing the book. In fact, I didn't know what the mission of Motivational Maths was until I wrote the book. Bizarrely, that's 10 years into the program, effectively. Mm. How unbelievable is that? But I kind of like, you know, how stupid is it? But I actually suddenly realized what it was. And bizarrely, and again, counterintuitively, you find out that the mission of the company is not really about motivation per se. I mean, the motivation is the vehicle for it, but it's not actually about motivation. There's a, there's another mission that's much more important around what we're doing. And it sounds like a lot of what you're doing here came out of being legacy driven. So yes, yes. had you just been in it for making the money, you'd, you'd have a business that is, is there to make as much money as possible right now, um, set you up for the future, but, but, you know, but, but could, could end with you. Whereas exactly. So it sounds yes. like you don't want that. It sounds like you want the work that the business is doing to continue, um, well into the future. And yes. Therefore you need an organization that, that's able to support that. Yes. Well, interesting you should say that. Uh, you're absolutely right. But the book itself, Mapping Motivation, there are two large extensive case studies in it. And this is partly affected my thinking. One is with the Ordnance Survey, which I did myself. So it's one of my last clients I've done active work with. So I did a major study with 200 staff, managers, uh, director level with the um, Ordnance Survey. And the other one is with a company you may have heard of called the John Lewis Partnership, which I didn't do myself. But one of my top companies, Aspirin Business Solutions and Susanna Bray Waring, she did. So we've got these two big case studies. But what what have these two organizations got in common? You know, there's this retail outlet and there's this kind of, you know, mapping the country outlet. What are they, a government sort of um, organization? What are they got in common? I suddenly realized I was going through it. The Ordnance Survey was actually founded in 1746, the year after the, the Battle of Culloden. Wow. <laughs> you know, right. Uh, that's a pretty longevity kind of thing. And of course, the John Lewis Partnership was founded sort of in the 19th century. These are organizations which are actually already treating their people extremely well, but they want to go to another level. So they're using this tool. They are quality organizations with people at the heart of what they do. And what does that result in? Oh, hang on a minute. Longevity. Bingo. And so it was like this. So why can't one do that oneself? Why can't one create? I mean, it sounds a bit, you know, pretentious, but a, a, an organization that 150 years from now would still be doing its stuff if we could create the right structure and the right framework for it. So it's kind of like, it's inspirational, really. I find that kind of really inspirational and I'm going to, I'm going to go for broke with it. Brilliant. And I'm going to ask you a really practical question now, though, because earlier you also said 
Um, so we've talked a lot about building the business, um, you know, working on uh, on the business instead of in the business. But earlier you said you really enjoy working in the business as well. <laughs> yeah. So how was that kind of, you know, how did you pull yourself away from doing something you enjoy? And do you do you do? Do you, do you enjoy doing the on the business as much as you did in the business? Well, that remains to be seen. I think what I think the answer is going to be yes. And the reason I think it's going to be yes is because how I actually um, uh, devise what working on the business means for me, as opposed to what it might mean for anyone who was normally thinking, well, this is what you, this is what we do when we work on the business. And this is how everyone does it. You know, you, you've got to do it. This is in a way, this business is a lifestyle choice for me. Bizarrely, it doesn't intend to become corporate, although I'd like to be worldwide. It's, it's about our lifestyle. So to put this in, in context, Working in the business uh, had be, had begun to become quite onerous, not because I didn't enjoy the training, not because I didn't enjoy the coaching, but because it just left me no time to really focus on. There was too much. The, the, the diary was becoming clogged with all the stuff and all, you know, with 250 licensees, you could imagine, you know, all the inquiries from 14 countries, you, you suddenly start thinking, you know, really, I'm not spending enough time on this. And it, it, it starts getting that kind of, you know, grinding you down feeling. So I, I had to leave what I love. But in terms of structuring what I'm going to do, my number one motivator is the creator motivator. In other words, innovation is my number one motivator. And expertise is actually my number two. Now, that's actually very useful because what I'm going to be doing um, is not just working on the business, i.e., looking at financial numbers and, and just Come go on and all that. Yeah, exactly. What I'm doing... The map now has got four distinct products. There are four maps, in fact. There's an individual map. There's a youth map for kids at school. There's a team map. There's, and there's actually a new organizational map, which launches um, this year. The beta version was last year. The, the full version will be this year. So, And there's more product beside. I've realized that, you know, uh, Peter Drucker said once that there are only two things that made money for a business. One, marketing, and everything else was a cost. But the second thing he said that made money, which is not so obvious, it was innovation. And I realized, I mean, if you listen to the John Lewis Partnership chairman um, about three or four days ago announcing the results of the John Lewis Partnership, by the way, their their profits were up 5.1% um, uh, in John Lewis Partnership. Waitrose was down one, but overall it was up 4.1%. And he kept saying during the course of the interview with the BBC, he kept saying, because we keep innovating, we keep innovating, innovate, they're innovating. And I realized myself in the nine, 10 years I've been running Motivational Maps since 2006, you know, there's been this constant process and the, the illness actually accelerated it. So for me, the creation of new product and the productization is going to be a major part of what I'm going to be doing. Now, that is going to thrill me to bits. I am going to love that. The second thing, of course, is the writing, the writing of the books and the blogs and everything else. That too is a major thing I love. So there are two areas here where I've got plenty of stuff to get my teeth into, which is going to keep me happy as a little puppy going ruff, ruff, ruff on its walk. Of course, there will be other stuff working on the business, which is perhaps not so fulfilling for me. But I think, you know, you have to take, you have to take the whole package. So I, I think there's enough. I've set, I've set myself up in a way, I think, where there's enough to keep my motivators flying so that at the end of the year, 2016, if, you, if Ian Brody rang me up and says, What's your motivational score now? I'd still be ninety nine percent, if not a hundred. So that that that's that's really good. So it, so it, it it comes back to what we're going to talk about in the second part of the interview about find you know finding out what motivates people. In this case, yourself, and 
rather than taking just the phrase work on the business instead of in the business at face value and thinking that's a list of 20 things that everybody has to do all the same and it's really dull administrative stuff, find the things in there that you really enjoy. Yes. Shape things in there that you enjoy and focus on those. Yes, absolutely right. So one of the things I've got to work on this year that's going to really make be tedious for me is, is legal contracts. That is, you know, getting them right. We need to revamp of all this. If I were a defender motivator and security was my number one motivator, I'd find that really fascinating. It'd be great fun to do. It's not. So I've got to find a way to do it properly, but you know, without too much hassle or not making it a priority in, in, in an absolute sense. So it is about, focusing on your motivators, knowing what turns you on and making sure there's plenty of it in the working week. So you're not, it's not just the grind. If it was just the grind, I'd have to, I think I'd have to give up work and, and stop, but it, it, it won't be. There's plenty there for me to do. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause when, when I've talked, I talk, do talk to a lot of people in the kind of consulting, coaching, training environment who often go down this route of, of getting worn down by the day to day face to face work thinking that the answer to them is to create some products or, or things like that. But then they find they don't actually enjoy the creation of the product. No. So it, so it was, it, it becomes even worse for them. And they, and that usually means that they give up halfway through because they don't enjoy it. And really what they enjoy is the face to face interaction with, with, with clients. So the, it, it sounds like you, you've got to go down this path when you're building a business rather than a, you know, being self-employed of really understanding what it is that you enjoy and then the broad range of things as well. I'm a firm believer. Sometimes I think we pigeonhole ourselves too much and we see, you know, what I enjoy doing is face to face client work. And therefore, if I'm not doing that, I'm not going to enjoy it. And I don't think that's true. I think with a little bit of application, we can enjoy a much more, a much, much bigger variety of things. We just have to try things out and, and get to enjoy them. Obviously, there'll be some things we don't enjoy and some things we enjoy much more. But I think our scope for enjoying things is, is bigger than perhaps we think. Absolutely. And in actual fact, I'll make you a free offer now, actually, in which we've not talked about before. But I mean, two years ago, whenever I did the last interview, you did a motivational map. I think the time has come for you to do a new one. Your motivations uh, will have changed. We need to see where you currently stand. But there are, of course, as you know from the preceding map, at least three main motivators, not just one. We're not motivated by one thing. We're usually motivated by at least three and they're interacting. So you're absolutely right. We can find enjoyment in more than just simply I like face to face interaction with the, with, with the client. You know, there's actually more than just that but it's finding the right things that really float your boat rather than the routine things where you think you've got to spend your time doing this and you you hate every second of it yeah so overall then what would your advice be for someone considering scaling their business where they you know currently do mainly the one-to-one work and they're thinking you know route i could go could be products or it could be getting licensees involved you know what what are your kind of top tips for someone in that position to get started or, or pitfalls they should watch out for well, I mean, everyone's different and that's a great, I mean, that's a really great question. Um, everyone's different and it's, it's, it's kind of like, you know, some people like products, some people like services, et cetera. So I think the kind of advice I've got to give you has got to focus on what I'd call the, the internal reality, the, the general principles rather than specifics, because for some people, licensing is not going to work. Uh, for others, franchising would be absolutely where there's a lot more control and a lot more detail. It would be great. So I can't comment on whether licensing, um, franchising, productization, services. I mean, innovation is the key thing. What we have to do is not be a me too kind of company doing something that anyone else can do at the same kind of price. And we're selling effectively a commodity. And that's what we need to avoid. We need uniqueness in the market. And the thing about the uniqueness is the uniqueness adds value. 
So what have I learned as tips or, or two or three good tips to say which are really important? And these may sound blindingly obvious, but I think we need to say that because in a way we don't learn the blindingly obvious. We say the blindingly obvious, but actual fact, half the time um, – we don't really mean it. People say together each achieves more. That's what a team is. But actually they think that, but they don't believe it. They don't believe that teams really work because if they did, they'd have a team, but they don't have a team. They have a group of people and they go on with these mantras, but they don't actually really embody them. So for one, I would say, um, if you're going to really create um, a scale business, you actually have to avoid doing it all yourself. It really is. So you have to put your ego, bypass your ego. <laughs> There's a sense in which we all of us think we're God mm. and the actual fact we are the source of all wisdom, of all knowledge, all skills. In fact, the better you are at what you do um, – the more that becomes a problem. I have that problem myself as a coach and a trainer. I think I'm pretty, you know, if you look at my LinkedIn profile, you will see over a thousand endorsements. You will see something like a hundred recommendations. People say how incredible difference I've made. I can end up believing nobody else can do this stuff except me. I am supreme. And you know, it's an ego trip. So I think you've got to actually avoid doing it yourself. You've got to actually start thinking about the word I used very early on in this interview, which was about collaborating. Who are the allies? And of course, you have to look for integrity. You have to look for trust. You have to look for ability. You have to look for a range of things. And it's very easy to make a mistake and to be disappointed. But we must never get to a point where our disappointment with an individual person uh, takes over and clouds our view of human nature. Human nature, in essence, wants to help, wants to be good, wants to r- rise to the occasion. And we need to find the people who can you know, resonate with us work with us to actually create something of much greater value than we could do on our own. So although I am the creator of Motivational Maps, the success of Motivational Maps uh, worldwide comes from the key people that I have surrounded myself with, either as licensees and or as champions, and who have been supporting me in, in, in these kind of ways. So I think that's absolutely central to, to, to bypass your ego and get beyond that. Um, I think as well, and again, we've just touched on this quite recently with what we just said, I think, yeah, have to make it fun i mean one of the dangers of being really business orientated is what i call the burnout and i i'm speaking not just because i've observed this as like some external person but because i've actually seen it as a coach i i, I you know I've, I've coached hundred mentored hundreds of people a lot of them a senior level managers senior managers you go in there and you see people and they have no time for their family they have no time for their interests and hobbies and things that they're were, they were interested in when they were young whether it's their music or whatever it was and you know and the business has not become it's just become this relentless drive to someday one day i'll have so much money i i can retire at 45 i can retire at 50 and it's like you know then my life will start but actually your life isn't going to start then. It's, it's actually, you're going to find it very difficult to start a life because you've not learned how to have the life before you get to 50. So I think it's very, very important to build into this. And um, I've always been a fun person. I don't think my cancer came about because I was too, uh, it came about for a number of reasons, probably to do with, you know, too much good food, too much good wine and stuff, rather than because I wasn't having enough fun. But I think building fun into what you're doing and enjoying it and that does come down to relationships because most of our fun is either through creativity or does come from relationships with people that we like um and it's so good when you meet up when i've got an appointment with somebody i really like i really look forward to it you know it's going to be fun this is going to be good talking to tony this is going to be good talking to ian this is going to be good talking to you know Susanna or whoever or jane or one of these people you know I am going to have a great time when I get with these people. So I think that's very important. And I think um, 
I'd come to my final point, which is really about the thing I, I, I confessed earlier on, which was about why. You probably have read Simon Sinek's book about the importance of why. And um, this is important. I think um, it, it's, it's about having a purpose in what you're doing rather than just working for money. Again, the very point you've made. I do think if you work for money, there's something – yeah, it's nice – but there's something deeply unsatisfying. You can never get enough money. It's never, it's never ending. If you're working for why and actually money is a byproduct of it all, I think that is so much more powerful. So I think, um, the why tends to be something which actually by its nature will tend to be simple. So the keep it simple speaker, um, keep it simple, sir, the keep it simple principle. What is the mission that you are trying to actually do? What is the change you're trying to affect through your product or your services? And every product, every service does have a consequence. So I think thinking that through is really, really important. And it's come to me belatedly. So it's not something I started with, so I'm not going to pretend that was there at the beginning. But as I've got more levels of success going and as it's, as it's building, it's becoming absolutely of paramount importance to me that I, I need to spend more time thinking about mission, clarifying mission, disseminating mission, branding, being part of our branding, that this is what we stand for. And that's really driven. Though the structure and every everything you're doing, it's kind of uh, – it's, it's worse. It's the thing you're heading towards and everything fits behind that. Yes, Absolutely. It's like a kind of um, control, a controlling mechanism. And the great thing about it is it doesn't control in a negative way. It controls in a positive way. It helps direct. And it also tells you when you're going off mission. So I think one thing, just as a sidebar for this, which you might find fascinating, if you read my book, the last two or three chapters talk about um, what the mission is. And I think perhaps I'll say what it is. Basically, the mission of Motivational Maps is to transform the way management works throughout the world by changing the current top-down model um, into a bottom-up model. The maps only work with a bottom-up approach. It's about engagement, effectively. And I realize it's not about the motivation. It's about the way that then that creates the dialogue, the engagement with the manager and the, and the employee so that, in fact, you understand where they're coming from and you feed that. And that is what starts driving a difference. And the thing about this in terms of the Pareto principle, probably only 20% of organizations throughout the world will ever embrace that the John Lewis partnership, uh, the ordinance survey, the ones which already care about people, the ones that just want to make a quick buck won't give a damn about that. They'll carry on with their command and control and crash um, and kind of model till, till doomsday, till they go out of business. But the thing is, is that, you know, what I'm saying is that immediately from a marketing point of view limits my audience to 20% of the audience. Of course, 20% of the world is a pretty big hmm slice of cake but you know i'm no longer looking whereas i started it would be any company was of interest to me because as long as they wanted to pay money and get get the mapping that was great i'm now much more picky now is this company really going to do this or are we just going through the motions you know so the whole thing about what you're doing starts becoming informed and colored by this clear definition of what the mission actually is it guides kind of everything it guides everything yes yeah it's taken me a long time to get to that point but um I now see it as being, I now see it as being mission critical. Ian. Right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> hey, James, that's been really fantastic. Thanks so much for that. Hey, we're going to move on to part two of the interview in a second, but uh, I'm going to close this section. Um, but if people want to find out more about you and, and motivation maps and, and the book, what should they do? Um, if they want to find out more about me, uh, then you would go to my website, my company website, which would be Motivational Maps. So it's www.motivationalmaps.com. 
com. So that would be um, the first port of call. Alternatively, you could find me myself at uh, James www.jamesaleoneword.co.uk. And if you wish to find the book, the book will become on sale, generally speaking, on the 28th of January. It will be available on Amazon on the 28th of January of this year. So you just simply go to Amazon and type in Mapping Motivation. Alternatively, if you wish a copy now, you would go to Gower, that's G-O-W-E-R Publishing. Go to the website of Gower Publishing, type in my name, and you will locate the book. And you can get a copy now if that is what you'd like to have. Brilliant. Thanks so much for that. And we'll speak very shortly. Thank you very much.